Let us open our New Testaments to John chapter 3 and take up at verse 22. John loves details, and he gives them to us in this gospel. You read a few days ago in chapter 19 that he was an eyewitness to particular details as to the final moments of Jesus Christ's life so that he could tell us that, that he was an eyewitness to the perfect fulfillment of certain prophecies about his final moments. There where and not a bone of him was broken because he was dead already, and therefore the Roman soldiers pierced his side, necessary to fulfill a couple of different prophecies. And John said, I was there. I saw it. And I'm reporting it in this gospel. He loves details, and he's going to return us now after the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus to the final days of John the Baptist's life before he's cast into prison and loses his life for the Lord's sake. I read to you verses 22 through 30 of John chapter 3. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anan near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing, except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. amen and amen. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into Judea. He was in Jerusalem. If you look back a few verses to chapter 2 and verse 13, the Jews' Passover was at hand. Jesus was in Galilee, so he goes to Jerusalem. It says he goes up. Even though when you look at a map, he went directly south because he went up in altitude from the Sea of Galilee up to the mountains that Jerusalem and Mount Zion rested upon. So in verse 13 of chapter 2, we see that he went to Jerusalem. At verse 23, we can tell he's still in Jerusalem when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. When it tells us here that after these things, it's referring to the things of Passover, driving out the money changers, answering the Jews in verses 18 through 22, the miracles that he did, and then helping Nicodemus for the first 21 verses of this third chapter. And there he tarried with them and baptized. So Jesus now has his crew, his apostles around him, and they baptized. Now Jesus didn't baptize, though he's the singular subject of the clause, the second clause of that verse. Jesus didn't baptize. His apostles baptized for him. When you look at that last clause of verse 22, and there he, he's the subject, there he tarried with them and baptized, but he didn't baptize himself. It was his apostles baptizing by his authority and under his direction. We know that by turning ahead to chapter 4, where we can read this, and you'll want to remember these verses. They'll help with chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 4, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now in parentheses, we have information given to us by the Holy Spirit. Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Notice that when Jesus 
heard that there was a comparison being made in numbers between him and John, he left Judea to go back into Galilee, where he had come from in 2.13. But just notice, here's a little point that's kind of minor, that sometimes in the Word of God it will say that, G, that a person is the subject, it can be a singular subject like this or plural, it doesn't matter, that he's doing something when he in fact is not doing it himself, but those under his authority and direction are doing it, and the Bible has other examples of these. For instance, if we look over at John chapter 19 and verse 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Well, Pilate didn't do the scourging. Pilate had men that did things like that for him, but it was under his direction, so he's the one that is said to have done the scourging. I only mention this in passing because when you read your Bibles and you study your Bibles and someone throws a verse at you that sounds not true, look carefully at what you're reading. And there are plenty of examples in the Bible that when someone operates or does something under the authority and direction of another or the influence of another, it's a sign to the one who holds the influence or the authority. And so it is here. Jesus did not baptize. His apostles baptized for him. And like in many other places, we have to rightly divide the word of truth. You know, I love to read this verse. It's a simple verse. It's a transitional verse. It's just telling us the location and activity of Jesus and his disciples. But what were these first Baptists doing? They were preaching and baptizing. You can't baptize unless you're preaching because you've got to have people that believe and repent in order to baptize them. And to get them to believe and to repent, you've got to be preaching something for them to believe and telling them they're doing something wrong for them to repent. So they're doing what Baptist preachers always ought to do. To preach, require repentance, and baptize converts. And so they were doing that, and it's a pleasure to read about it. Like John the Baptist, they were Baptist preachers requiring repentance and baptism. John the Baptist was the first Baptist preacher sent from God. Jesus was younger than him and followed after him, but his authority for it is far greater. And we get to see right here that the initiation of this Christian rite of baptism started with John the Baptist and was furthered immediately while John was still alive to have called it into question or to have stopped it or to have condemned it because John had a pretty wide following. Jesus was baptizing through his apostles as well. This is what preachers are supposed to do. This is what Baptists do. And so we move on to verse 23. And John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. That's an important little note if you're comparing the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus and the life of John, because John was cast into prison rather quickly. You go to Matthew chapter 4, and you have the Lord Jesus Christ being tempted in the wilderness by the devil in Matthew 4, and you've got John in prison in Matthew 4. It happened very quickly. They were, they were only contemporaries for a few months. And we're told that here by this little note in the 24th verse that these are some of the final deeds of John the Baptist. Now he's come across the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs north and south because it's at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea and you're either beyond Jordan or you're on this side of Jordan in Judea. And see here it says they're in Judea. When Jesus went to be baptized and met John the Baptist, it was beyond Jordan, past Jordan, when he went and did that, because we read that in chapter 1. But now we're, we've got John also was baptizing in close proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the first time, John has competition. John's been baptizing for a while, and there was only one like him, a wild man in the wilderness named John the Baptist that was baptizing repentant people, preparing them for the Messiah's arrival. Yeah. But now there's someone else baptizing. You know we're going to have to deal with that because there's some disciples of John that get jealous for him like followers of men get jealous. For instance, in, uh, in Numbers chapter 21, which we'll look at hopefully if we have time, there were a couple of men prophesying in the camp of Israel. Yep. <laughs> and... Joshua comes and tells Moses about it and says, Moses, tell him to stop. Because Joshua wanted to defend Moses as the only real prophet in Israel. And if, if you're not with Moses or standing near him and getting his direct blessing, you shouldn't be prophesying. And Moses 
after doing that, excuse me, I'm just a, I want to be a wild preacher too. But after doing that, Moses said, would to God. Everyone in Israel was prophesying. And that's the spirit that we ought to have. Because if they're not against us, they're for us. And we ought to be thankful for that and pray for them and encourage them when we have opportunity. So we have verse 23. John also was baptizing. We're told two very important things right here for a clear and unavoidable conclusion. The activity in Enon was water baptism by the first Baptist preacher, John. The reason for baptism occurring there was because there was much water. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? Two important things we want to get from verse 23. That John the Baptist, this is what Baptists do. They preach. They don't entertain and they baptize. Because you can't get people ready for baptism by entertainment. You've got to preach. And you read last evening in Luke chapter 3 that John the Baptist, when you went and heard John preach, he was going to find you out in the crowd by whatever segments you were part of and tell you you needed to change your lifestyle. That you should not do what your particular segment ordinarily does, but you need to do it differently. And that reached all the way to Herod. You should not have your brother's wife. John was a serious preacher. And he's baptizing. So John... The Baptist is baptizing. That's why he's called the Baptist. And there's much water there. And we like this verse. Now, we're told that it was in Enon. Nobody can find Enon today. No one can find Salem today by the way they look for it. You know, they, there's, lot, there's historians, however, that tell us about these two places. And the word Enon is a Greek translation of a Chaldee word that means water fountains, springs. That makes sense to us because he needed much water. And you need more water than just some tiny little rivulet. You need a spring or a fountain in a place called Waters or a city named after it. And that's historically we know that and looking at the origin of the word we know that. This is one of the last encounters of John the Baptist that we're going to meet with and it is here in this book of John's Gospel. Because there was much water there. So let's take up the mode of baptism for a few minutes. Now, children, when we use the word mode, the mode of baptism, we mean the method of baptism. We mean the way that baptism is done. We, the word mode is not in the Bible, but we use the word mode. When we talk about the subject of baptism, we mean the person getting baptized. When we talk about the administrator of baptism, we mean the person that does the baptizing. When we talk about the doctrine of baptism, it's what you need to believe when you're baptized. When we talk about the result of baptism, we mean what does baptism accomplish. But when we talk about the mode, and those are five things I just went through that make up baptism, and you can measure any church or any denomination by those five things, and the vast majority will be found wanting because we Baptists are a small minority in the world. And we don't take pride in being called Baptists because of Baptists around us, we're thankful that we're Baptists because of what the Bible says about the first Baptist. And we know that Jesus was a Baptist because he was baptized by John the Baptist. Right. If you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, in all cases, you're a Baptist. That's so simple. It's very repugnant to others, however. <laughs> but we're not going to apologize for it. Jesus called him the Baptist. He didn't call him a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, or a Lutheran. He called him a Baptist. Right. And that, listen, there is precious value yeah. in that name of Baptist. Amen. That is a transliterated word. If it was translated, it would be John the Dipper, John the Plunger. That's not a nice one. John the Dipper, John the Submerger, John the Immersioner. It wouldn't be John the Baptist. There are people that have, that have screamed, Baptists that have screamed against King James, the first of England and sixth of Scotland, for not translating that word because he was trying to protect their false doctrine of baptism. That isn't true. He left baptizo there, just transliterated. And brethren, where do we go when we want to find the true and real meaning of the Greek word baptizo? We go and ask the Greeks. We don't ask the Latin Catholic Church of Rome. We want to go farther east than that. Right. 
We don't go ask Americans that took three semesters when they were in Bible college sometime and think that they're experts on Greek. We want to ask the Greeks. And when you go and read the Greek Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church or the church that's been in Greece for 1,500 years and read their doctrine of baptism, guess what? They believe about the word baptizo, that it is always and only a word for dipping, submerging, or plunging, or immersing something completely underwater. So when they baptize their babies, they have a trine, a trine baptism in the name of the Father, splash, that baby goes all the way under and comes back up. It's usually not very happy. And then the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Ghost. You can watch it on Google. You know, never before has a pastor been able to be held accountable for everything he says. All you have to do is go home and look it up in a Google search. It's worth watching. If you like spiritual entertainment, to take that little baby in its christening gown and blow it underwater and bring it back up three times because they know what the word baptizo means. We don't have to worry about it being transliterated instead of being translated. I like John the Baptist. It has a nice ring to it. I think it's 2,000 years of use that has given it a nice ring to it. But John the Dipper is what it means. Because the mode of baptism is dipping, submerging, plunging, immersing underwater. And that's where we're at, John 3.23. We're Baptists. Why would we want to be anything else? Baptists immerse. The first Baptist was John. Anything, anyone baptized by a Baptist is a Baptist. Jesus was a Baptist, so was his mother. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a Baptist. I like that one too. The, the true mode of baptism, the true mode, method, the way it's done of baptism is proven in the Bible by two different categories of proof. The practice of baptism that we can read about in the New Testament, or we can call it the example the way that it was done that we can read about historically, the practice of baptism, the way they did it. The second way we prove the mode of baptism is by the symbolism of baptism. And those are the two categories. That's all there is. That's all there is. But it's big, and it's powerful, and it's weighty. And when the Bible says in the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established, we can prove this doctrine in the mouth of two witnesses by the practice of the apostles, and, by, of John, and of John, and the symbolism that baptism has to represent. How did John, Jesus, and the apostles practice baptism? They immersed people. This is the example they give us throughout the pages of Scripture. Let's turn a few pages. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. We are not defending the Southern Baptist Convention. We are not defending any other Baptist church. We are defending John the Baptist. We are defending Bible baptism. We want, let's be careful about what we're talking. We're not here with some denominational pride or arrogance. We're here with those that stick with the word of God and baptize the way that John did. Mark chapter 1. And let's see if we can find a few examples of how they practiced baptism in the Bible. Mark chapter 1 verse 5. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, look at all this verse has to say. And there went out unto him. Why would people have to leave the comfort of their homes, their city streets, take GPS with them, wander across the Jordan River and find John baptizing at some ford of that river? Why'd they have to go to such pain and trouble many miles away from Jerusalem? To get to that water. So it says, There went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him. And where were they baptized? In the river of Jordan. Not at the river of Jordan. Not near the river of Jordan. Not with water from the Jordan in a canteen. In the river of Jordan. Thank you, Lord. Do you love your Bibles? We're Baptists for a reason. Not because we were raised Baptists. We're Baptists because the Bible tells us we should be Baptists if we're going to be Christians because the founders of our religion, John and Jesus, were Baptists. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. 
Mark 1, 5 had it in one place. We'll look at Matthew 3, where Jesus was baptized. Matthew 3, 13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee, 70 or 80 miles, to Jordan, unto John, to be baptized of him. Why didn't John come to Galilee? There wasn't as much water. There was the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus goes to John. John was in one place. The people went to him. And this is a, quite, a tra- quite a distance if you look at a Bible map. Jesus comes from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Now to go up straightway out of the water, where were you before you went up straightway out of the water? You were down in the water. Do we have verses that argue that way? That you can't ascend unless you first descended? Does the Bible reason that way anywhere that you can think of? Like Ephesians chapter 4, but that's a, that's, a, that's a little point that we don't need to chase. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, meaning that he was down in the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That is the founder of our religion. That's our Lord and our Savior. That's the high King of heaven at his baptism, God, granting it his divine stamp of approval by sending the Holy Spirit down on his Son and praising him for being a beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. But it was in the Jordan, down, and coming back up. And so we just look at how they baptized. John should have been able to have a canteen and walk around and sprinkle and pour a little bit on anybody that he chose to baptize. In fact, he could have licked his thumb like a stamp and pushed people on the third eye chakra out of their forehead in order to baptize them if these other denominations have any validity. They don't have any validity. Ask them. Ask them to show you a verse in the New Testament that shows that sprinkling is the mode of baptism. Ask them to show you a verse in the New Testament that pouring is the mode of baptism. They don't have a thing. They're utterly bankrupt when it comes to Bible evidence. They will take you to the Old Testament for an obscure prophecy of the New Covenant and having the Holy Spirit given to men and try to make that baptism from Ezekiel chapter 36 about having water sprinkled upon us, but it's referring to the Holy Spirit because remember that there is a symbology that we have even here in John 3, 5 of water equals the Spirit. Okay, we're still looking. Let's go to John chapter 1. We're looking at examples. We're looking at what does the Bible say? What does it show us? How were they baptized by the apostles? John 1, 28, we're going to look at all of them. Sometimes it just says, and they baptized them. So that doesn't tell us much. So we don't go to those verses. I'm going to every one that tells us about the mode. John 1, verse 28. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. We've already studied this verse. Bethabara means house of the Ford. That is not a car, youth. House of the Ford. The word Ford means a place where the water is of such a depth that you can wade across. Does that sound like a good depth for baptism? It sounds perfect. If it's knee deep, you break your back. If it's neck deep, you don't really get to lay them down. You just push their heads underwater. Now, it sounds like I'm being frivolous about baptism, but I'm not. What do you want? You want the depth of a ford. What's a ford? A place where a variety of heights of people can wade across. We, went, we already went over that in John 1.28 earlier when we studied the first chapter. And now we have John 3.23, and now we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and find Philip, the deacon, changed, promoted to evangelist, baptizing the eunuch. When you ask, when, when somebody says to you, 
What's a deacon doing baptizing? Do you allow deacons to baptize? Because Philip was a deacon in Acts chapter 7, but in Acts chapter 8, Philip is baptizing. Well, in between the two, Philip is sent to Samaria and preaches, and the whole, a large part of the whole city is converted under his preaching. And the next time we find Philip, we're told it, he was Philip the evangelist. And where, would, where does evangelism start? In Samaria. Right. When, where was, how was Samaria related time-wise to finding the eunuch? In front of it. He was an evangelist before he met the eunuch. We do not believe that you can baptize yourself. We do not believe that anyone in here can baptize anyone else. Or we're going to have our children baptizing each other in swimming pools. Because as soon, as soon as you break down the authority of an administrator to baptize, there is no limit. What verse is going to stop you from our children baptizing each other? Somebody will say, well, what about the certain disciple in Acts chapter 9 that baptized Saul of Tarsus? Why don't you go read a little bit about that certain disciple and find out about the visions that he had from God and know that he was a very gifted man in that city. He was more than just a regular church member. God dealt with him very directly with gifts that were exalted gifts. Thinking of another example in the Bible. But here we are at Acts chapter 8. Verse 36, what's been happening? Another Baptist preacher, Philip, a Baptist preacher. How do we know he's a Baptist preacher? Because he was baptizing in Samaria. That's how. He's been preaching Jesus. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, that is to the Ethiopian eunuch, Jesus. And as they went on their way, as they continued to bounce along in this chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a man of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, they came unto a certain water. Now they had water in their chariot. No way would you be out in the wilderness without water. But they came to a certain water. They came to a body of water. They didn't come to water. They came to certain water. A, a certain water. A body of water. An oasis. A pond. A lake. They came to it. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. He had water. He could have spit. Philip could have spit on his forehead. Did Jesus ever spit in men's eyes? You know, you're, some of you are thinking that I'm off my rocker today. But Jesus spit in men's eyes sometimes right. to heal them. Why couldn't Philip have spit on the eunuch's forehead and then rubbed it around in the form of a cross with his thumb? Why didn't the eunuch say to Philip, there's water pointing right at his mouth? Seriously. Right. Why did it take coming to a certain water, a body of water... I'm going to tell you where the unit came from. Do you know where the unit came from? His most recent city he had been at? Jerusalem. Why was he at Jerusalem? For to worship. Do you think he went near the temple for to worship? If he went near the temple, who was assembling there every day? Baptists. Disciples. He saw baptism taking place. He heard about baptisms taking place. He knew that it required immersion from where he had just been. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? We've got the mode covered, Philip. What else do I need to do? Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That's why we call it believer's baptism. Children, we hold to believer's baptism. You can't be baptized until you're a believer. And we put some age on that to give a very active conscience and a knowledge of what it means to believe and be baptized. That's what believer's baptism means. What doth hinder me? If thou believest, thou mayest. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. So we look for serious conversions. There was no praise band getting an emotional response out of the eunuch here. There was preaching of Jesus. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. I don't know why. That got them later on their trip. Their ETA was just altered. Estimated time of arrival. GPS had to recalculate. Think about it. 
Why'd they stop the chariot? They had water on board. I wish that you could hear a Presbyterian. I'm going to give a few examples what they do to Scripture in the other direction. I just want you to read through these passages and think about them thoroughly. Right. He stopped his chariot. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water. They went down. They both went down. They went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Now, does it have both in the middle of that verse? And they went down both into the water? Why does it say again, both Philip and the eunuch? Didn't we get it once? Didn't we grasp it the first time? They both, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip and so forth. We once had a dry pastor baptistry behind me where this wall now stands. But we tore it out, and my father got us a few dollars through Craigslist by selling it to other unsuspecting parties. <laughs> I had never seen or heard of such a ridiculous thing as a dry pastor baptistry. When we first looked at this building, and I looked at that thing and saw that it was only 24 inches wide, I mentioned someone in the congregation that was larger than me, and that is a minority in that particular time. I mentioned someone in the congregation. I said, Dad, what's going to happen with both of us in there? He said, Son, that's a dry pastor baptistry. You stand behind it. You don't have to change your clothes, and you just shove his head or lay him down from there, and you know, you've rolled your sleeves up, and you don't have any more water on you than up halfway to your elbows. I had never heard of it, and I'm decently red. Never knew of such a thing. I said, well, let's get it out of here. Okay, if someone came to me and said, I was baptized 20 years ago in a dry pastor baptistry, I would say, you know, that from, from, our angle, from our view now, if you have faith in the matter, God accepts it because you were buried. But for me, not looking back, and not being the one being baptized, but the one doing the baptizing, I want to be part of the word both. Right. I mean, both boats. I love our Bibles. What, why, why the repetition there? They both went down into the water. So we don't have a dry pastor baptistry, and your pastor has to get considerably wet in order to baptize. But we do it for a reason. John dipped plunged, submerged men in a watery grave to resurrect them from the water. And so now we move to the symbolism of baptism. We have found by looking at every occurrence where there is anything about direction or how the water was approached, we've looked at all of them. They went to Jordan. They were baptized in Jordan. Jesus and John went down into the water, came up out of the water. Philip and the eunuch down in the water. They had to go where there was much water. They had to go where there was a ford in the water of waist-deep water. Thank you, Lord. There is no other verse. Except now we move to verses about the symbolism. 1 Peter 3.21. 1 Peter 3.21. This is too much fun to keep track of time. We need to move through these verses because I want to get to verse 30 and that'll end our day. It's a wonderful verse. I hope that you love that verse. He must increase and I must decrease. And I want that to be the spirit of our church. Let's meet the Lord Jesus Christ on those terms. We did everything in our church. We did everything in our families, in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives. To increase the Lord Jesus Christ and to decrease ourselves. That isn't the real lesson there because the real lesson is historical about the incredible character of this man with a very limited ministry named John the Baptist. And when his own disciples came to him, to induce him to some envy where he could have said something about his importance. He did not say anything about his importance, but the importance of the one that he preceded. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's great, it's great stuff, and we'll be able to cover it rather quickly. But right now I'm having too much fun. Because I'm a Baptist preacher. I was born to a Baptist preacher. I had uncles that were Baptist preachers. 1 Peter 3.21 the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In parentheses are the words, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. In parentheses tells us that baptism doesn't wash away sins, period. It is not put away the filth of flesh. The second thing it says is it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. So the person that gets baptized has to be old enough to have an active conscience about discipleship, following Christ, and being thankful for the finished work of redemption of his son on the cross of Calvary. But we don't need that. We need what's not in parentheses. It says that baptism is a like figure. That means that baptism is a figure. Baptism is symbolic. Baptism shows a picture of something. And it says it's a like figure because there's a figure in verse 20, and the figure in verse 20 is Noah's Ark. I have been over these verses many times. This is my favorite verse about baptism. It covers three of the five requirements for a Bible baptism in one verse. This verse has been corrupted in every Bible tra other translation. This verse has been corrupted three different ways to, re to remove the three points of doctrine in most modern Bible versions. We want to see that baptism is a figure. Someone will ask, it says that baptism saves. Well, when it says that a figure saves you, how does it save you? Figuratively. That is not too deep. All of you can handle that. If it says the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, it saves us figuratively. But now forget what's in parentheses, and that's exactly how you're supposed to read the English language. Stuff in parentheses is separate information that can be removed to get the flow of the sentence. So the sentence would now read, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This thing called baptism, which we know what it is, it's to dip, submerge, or plunge. This thing called baptism is a figure and saves us figuratively by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because water baptism buries a person and resurrects a person. It's got to be a figure of resurrection. Is sprinkling a figure of resurrection? Is pouring a figure of resurrection? No and no. Both knows. Romans chapter 6. Lord, I love your word. I will preach every word of it that you show, us, show to me. These people will believe every word that I can show them is true from your word. We love your scriptures. Amen. We'll spiritualize where we ought to spiritualize. Otherwise, we're going to believe them as they're stated. Romans 6, 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. That is so sweet. We are buried with him by baptism into death, that like, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There is a likeness to burial, to death, burial and resurrection in water baptism. Romans 6, 3 and 4. We've been through this verse, phrase by phrase, at another time. I can't repeat it right now. I'm just showing you and telling you that baptism has a likeness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come up out of the water, we are to live that resurrected life that we just showed by being down in the water and buried. We go to verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, was Jesus planted after he died? Yes. What is the, does the Bible use any terminology like this? That he was in the belly of the earth? Jesus was put underground. You say he was put in a cave with a giant stone rolled in front of it. Listen, when you've got a whole mountain on top of you, are you underground? I think you're more underground than you are when you've just got six feet of very turned topsoil. What in the world do people want to do? with? Oh, they argue that. Jesus wasn't buried. They write me that because we have an article against cremation. And they're planning their family budget on how to save money. They won't bury 
they want to cremate. So they'll write me and tell me that Jesus wasn't buried. No, he just had a mountain on top of him. Back to Romans 6, Pastor. For if we have been planted, for those of you that garden, tomato growers, and others in the church, do you lay a seed in the sidewalk and sprinkle a little dirt at it? Or do you plant it underground, submerge it, press it, dip it, stick it down in? Of course you do. Baptism is called a planting right here, and it's in a likeness of death. Jesus was planted, we plant, by planting a person all the way under the water and raising them up again. And John the Baptist was doing that in Anan near to Salem because there was much water there. Look at Colossians chapter 2 that I read to you earlier this morning. Colossians 2. Lord, I hope that you enjoy it when we have fun with your word. Fun with your doctrine. And by fun, Lord, I mean the pleasure and the joy that fills our hearts and fills our minds that you have shown us truth that 95% of those that call themselves your followers refuse to obey in the scriptures. There's 2.2 billion Christians on earth today and 95% of them cannot figure out this simple doctrine. The Catholics, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Church of England, the Orthodox, and others sprinkle and pour. They violate the mode. Forget infants. It's the mode we're talking about right now. They don't need much water. They don't even need a soaker. What do you call those big squirt guns that you have nowadays? You know, when I grew up, it was just some little thing. You shot it three times, and you had to go fill it up again. But the super soaker, yes. You know, the way that they baptize, you only need a little bit of water. Not much water. Why? Because we're smarter? Not a chance. Look at us. You say, but you're pretty smart, aren't you, Pastor? Yes, I am. I flunked reading for pleasure in the 10th grade. <laughs> Didn't you go to seminary and get a degree in theology? Are you kidding? I went to a former Catholic girls' school called Madonna College and got a degree in bank finance. Then what's your claim to fame? I don't have one. I just said, thank you, Lord, for showing us the truth. By his providential leading, he's shown us these verses. By teachers, the way we were trained, raised, and the Lord's taught us and led us. Amen. Colossians 2.12, look at that verse. Buried with him in baptism. How do you get buried by sprinkling? How do you get buried by pouring? You can't, you won't. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also, that means in that same baptism, ye are risen with him. Through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. How do you get baptized? You believe that God has operated on this, in this world and raised his son from the dead. It is belief in the resurrection that causes you to want to be baptized to show a resurrection yourself. Because when we are baptized with the proper mode, there is a burial and there is a resur resurrection. And there are three burials and three resurrections we never want to forget. Number one, Jesus was buried and rose again for us. Number two, we're going to bury our old man to rise to walk in a new life. Three, if you bury my body, Jesus Christ is coming back to resurrect me out of the ground. Amen. That is an incredible ordinance. And sprinkling and pouring do not present any of it. Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him. Where? What? How? In baptism. So then we come over to chapter 3 and verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. How am I risen with Christ while I'm still on earth? Because I'm supposed to seek those things which are above where I am not yet. Because I'm still on earth. How am I risen? Practically by baptism. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. I hope you remember a little bit about this. We'll only take a moment here. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. What is 1 Corinthians 15 all about in all 58 of its verses? The resurrection of the dead body. The resurrection of bodies. The whole chapter. The resurrection of physical bodies. Paul uses every conceivable argument that the Holy Spirit chose to inspire. 
There are doctrinal arguments, there are historical arguments, and there are two practical arguments. The one practical argument follows this one and is about putting his life at risk all the time. If there wasn't a resurrection of the dead, why would he do it? But this argument is, you Corinthians, why do you baptize like Baptists? I see your sign that you're the first Baptist church of Corinth, I jest, to make a point. Since you're a Baptist church in Corinth, why are you baptizing the way Baptists baptize if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body? That's what the verse is all about. It's a practical argument. You should stop baptizing. Baptists don't like to stop baptizing. Try to hold them back from baptizing. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, it's a standalone argument based on the doctrine of the mode of baptism proves the resurrection of the dead. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Do you understand that if there is no resurrection, the doctrine of baptism in its mode is foolish? That's, all, that's what the verse is teaching. If the dead rise not at all, if there is no resurrection of the dead, why... Are you at Corinth baptizing in a picture of burial and resurrection from the dead? It's a sandwiched verse. First half, first third and third third say the same thing. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Are they then baptized? For, why are they then baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not, if there isn't resurrection, why are you Baptists? Because Baptist baptism says we believe in the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Right. Do you think a Presbyterian can give you an explanation of that? Yes, they can. They can give you 10 to 12 explanations, none of which are true. And at the end, when they draw their conclusion, they'll say, we don't know what he meant. Do I have proof of that? I've sent it to you. Matthew Henry, the number one commentator in the world. A whole page on 1 Corinthians 15, 29 with 10 10 suggestions, 10 hypothetical solutions for the text, none of which are true because he doesn't dare mention the Baptist solution. And then he says, we don't know what what he meant. This is the only thing we can know for sure. The Corinthians understood him. Check me out. Please check me out. Write me a one-sentence email of how much you enjoyed checking me out. Thank you, Lord. Baptism shows those three resurrections, Christ, our changed lives, and what's going to happen to our bodies. We believe the Baptist word and the the Greek underlying it is sufficiently established by what the Greeks say about that word, that baptizo means to dip, to plunge, to submerge, to immerse underwater. What Bible authority, no matter how weak, is there for baptism by sprinkling? None in the New Testament What do commentators that are baby-sprinkling heretics do with John 3.23? And John also was baptizing in Ain and near to Salem because there was much water there. Albert Barnes declares that the water was for all the livestock that converts brought with them when they came to hear John preach. Adam Clark declares that any contact of water with the body had the essence of baptism. I suggest that we try milk and cookies for the next Lord's Supper because it has the essence of food and drink. Any contact of H2O with a body has the essence of baptism. Essence? I don't want the essence. I want the symbolism and the figure of it that glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin contradicted himself coming and going. You've got you to read it to believe it. About the apostolic method. He knew that the apostolic method of baptism was immersion, but he couldn't, he couldn't continue on that course or he should be immersing. And he wasn't an immerser. Others painstakingly lie about standing in the water in order for a pouring. They try to describe the necessity of standing in knee-deep water before you get poured on. Now, if you go to Bob Jones University, the world's most unusual university in our own city that claims to be a citadel of the faith and the bastion of orthodoxy and stands against Rome and all of its heresies, and you go into their art museum, you're going to find Jesus standing in Jordan with water up to his knees and John pouring a cup over his head. Why in the world would they want to get their feet and legs wet if he's just going to pour it over their head? A little cup or something. Oh, the mode. Thank you, Lord. There's much more that 
well, not much, that could be said. Let's go back to John because we need to finish up here. John was not yet cast into prison. I hope that you're a Baptist by conviction. I hope you're a Baptist by Scripture. They came and were baptized. I love the last few words of verse 23. They came and were baptized. That's passive. Someone else has to baptize you. You can't baptize yourself. And they had to come because they had to find someone with authority to baptize. They couldn't just pick someone on the, on the, uh, the block. Would you baptize the rest of us on this block? No, they went to John that had authority because it says in the Bible, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. We read that, John 1, verses 6 and 7. He was the baptizer. And so they came to him and were baptized by him. The people, in order to be baptized, had to travel to get to John's much water. Subsequent Christians must also put forth effort at times for much water. You know, sometimes we have to go through a little bit of effort to get enough water to bury a person, to submerge them, to put them all the way under. John was not yet cast into prison. And so we cover the first three verses, verses 22 through 24. When we come back, here's what we're going to have in verses 25 through 30, and we will cover them. In verses 25 through 30, a question arose from the Jews to question John's disciples about the baptismal differences, that, if there were any, between John and Jesus, and why John, the lone baptizer, now had a competitor. What was going on? What purification? Listen, there's three purifications that would mess up a Jew's mind. Number one, all the Jews' purifications that they got from Moses. Number two, John's baptism of repentance. Number three, the baptism of Jesus that was now taking place in close proximity on the same side of Jordan. And so they come with questions. The disciples of John run home to their master, feeling sorry that now he has a competitor. Master, rabbi, you know that man that you bore witness of? He's baptizing now, and all men come to him. Can you just feel their exaggeration? You know, Jesus had baptized 74 people by that time, but all men had come to Jesus in the eyes of John's disciples because they were jealous for their master, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going to teach them a great lesson, and he's going to teach us a great lesson. This is the one I told you about, and if you would think about everything that was said, he should have baptized me. This is the Son of God. He needs to increase I need to decrease. He's the most important one at this party because he is the bridegroom. I'm just the bridegroom's friend. But seeing my bridegroom get all the attention and to hear him talking is the joy and thrill of my soul. Is that you today? Is that me today? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.